I'm going to ask you to turn with me in the Word of God this morning to 2 Thessalonians. 2 Thessalonians. And our portion will be verses 1 through 11. Verses 1 through 11. Will you stand with me if you're here or wherever you are? Stand with me now out of respect for the reading of the holy, infallible, inspired, in an errant word of the living God. To this end, we pray for you also always that our God will count you worthy of your calling and fulfill every desire for goodness and the work of faith with power so that the name of our Lord Jesus Christ will be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. You may be seated. The great Scottish Presbyterian athlete Eric Liddell who captured 400-meter gold medal in the 1924 Olympics, once famously said, I believe God made me for a purpose. And when I run, I feel his pleasure. It is not just fun to win. To win is to honor him. To win is to honor him. And what makes this uh, quote so fascinating, at least for me, is how it contrasts so sharply with what we see in so much of the spectacle of the sports world today, where athletes use uh, the gridiron and the court as a podium for the display of their glory. And Liddell, the Scottish Presbyterian son of a preacher, was quite different in that he understood that the field and the track was indeed a place for glory. It just wasn't his. Because he understood who was his maker and who was his redeemer and the one who had made him to be how he was. And therefore, the very gifts and tools and aptitudes and abilities that he possessed were for him to use to display the glory of God. He understood that the things which he had been called to do were things for him to seek glory in, not his own, but God. I've entitled our message this morning, Seeking Glory. And one of the things that I want to plant in our thinking as we approach our text is when we think about seeking glory, it should be self-evident and obvious to us that the kind of glory-seeking that we're thinking about here is not like so much of the rabble of modern athletics. It's like what Liddell spoke of, running for his pleasure, winning for his glory. And I choose the theme of seeking glory here because that's precisely what Paul seeks in this prayer. It's a prayer, yes, you can see the prayer and its specifics in verse 11. God will count you worthy of your calling and that God will fulfill every desire for goodness and the work of faith with power. Those are the requests. But what you can't miss is that the requests 
are inseparably connected with an aim. And that aim is in verse 12. So that the name of our Lord Jesus Christ will be glorified in you. You see, it's quite evident to us here that the apostle is seeking glory. Glory for God and in turn glory for the church as God in heaven energizes his people to acts of Christian service through grace. That's the main point of our text here. Glory to God and to his church as the people of God are energized to acts of Christian service by grace. Three parts to our message this morning. The context, the requests, and the aim. And we connect to context here with the initial words in verse 11, to this end also. To this end also. And virtually everyone who looks at this text agrees that these words reach backwards. And they reach backwards all the way to verse 3, where the Apostle Paul begins his address to the church of, uh, of Thessalonica with thanksgiving. And it's quite evident to us what he gives thanks for. He says, um, your faith is greatly enlarged. The love of each one of you toward one another grows even greater. And therefore we ourselves speak proudly of you among the churches for your perseverance and faith in the midst of all of your persecutions and afflictions. So you can see here that the apostle was giving thanks for a threefold grace. That's the context of our prayer. And we'll uh, take a moment here in just a minute to connect that thanksgiving to the prayer by way of context to, to see why this is so significant. But bear with me for a moment as we think through this threefold grace here, because there's something to be learned here for the church when we think about the very things the apostle says he gives thanks for. And the first is enlarged faith. Enlarged faith. This word enlarge is, is a significant word, first of all, because the verb is in the present tense. So really, it is progressively enlarging. So it's not speaking of something static, of a, of a large faith, but an ever-increasing, an abounding, an intensifying, and progressing faith. And so that brings us into this word faith, and immediately we perceive that faith is not being used here in the sense of the instrument of our conversion or justification. Sometimes it is used that way. Sometimes faith is, is that thing, we say, which, which reaches out to Christ and lays hold of him for righteousness and salvation. But it's evident here that as the apostle connects enlarging to faith, that the apostle is not thinking of saving faith. He's thinking of faith in action. He's thinking of trusting. He's thinking of those who are relying upon God and living by faith in the Lord. So he's thinking here of an ever-growing, increasing faith. And it grips us as we think about that because this is not a static faith or a cold faith or a wavering faith. Or a feeble faith. The Thessalonians example to us this morning is of something more strong and stable 
overflowing and enlarging. It's a great faith. They've been richly blessed in Christ. And so he says he gives thanks over them. But he adds here something else about them. Enlarging love. Overflowing love. The love of each one of you toward one another grows even greater. And so when he thinks about the love of Thessalonians, he's not thinking about their love for God or God's love for them, although that would certainly be in the backdrop of the picture here. But it's clear that when he speaks of their love toward one another, he's thinking of brotherly love. He's thinking of how the person sitting next to the other person in the pew next to them or chair next to them is someone whom they love. That the people in front and behind them are people whom they love. And when he speaks of love, he's not speaking of a feeling or an attitude, but practicality. That they are increasing in practical acts of love and kindness for one another. And so in that sense, they are bearing the great mark of the disciples. Remember, John, uh, Jesus says in John 13, 35, by this, they will know you're my disciples because you love one another. There's no such thing as a disciple of Christ who is true and genuine, who doesn't love church people. And I say it exactly like that because when I say love church people, it brings into picture the difficulty. Because the love he speaks of is an enlarged love, an abounding love, a, a bursting through boundaries kind of love. And so one commentator decided to bring up a comparison, I think an apt one, to draw out the difficulty of this. He says it's not a love of association or common interest. I was listening to an interview with a football player last week on the radio. And he talked about there's nothing like the locker room at a football team. Because in that assembly and group of, of guys, there's camaraderie. There's a bond. There is something that connects them and unites them in, in a way that's just remarkable and in a way perhaps we don't typically experience association in life. It, it doesn't have to be football. If you've ever played on any kind of a team, you realize there's something about the team aspect of sport that leads us into sharing the same struggles, enduring the same dramas, enjoying the victories and suffering through the losses that leaves us tied together in a way that's extraordinary and marvelous. He said, I'm going to miss that. I'm going to miss that. If you played ball, you probably remember the last game you ever played. Because you'll remember that's the last time you had that kind of association, probably, with people. That's a love of common interest. That's a love of association. And that's not like the love of the church. You see, when we gather here in the church, it's not by our choice. God takes us from all of our wandering and disparate and distinct and unique backgrounds. I love how the apostle 
loves to shout from the rooftops of the New Testament that we're one in Christ. There's no more bond nor free, barbarian or Scythian, Jew nor Greek. But in those statements, he's telling us something about the church. It's full of a, of a rabble of people. And common interests and association isn't their defining feature or characteristic. I dare say this morning that if it was up to you, you wouldn't choose me. I wouldn't be your brother. But you see, that's what makes this love of the brethren so unique and so commendable. Because it's not based upon the fact that we share appetites and desires and goals and unique experiences and language and culture and all this. What makes it unique and so special is that we love one another because Christ loves each of us whom he died for. You think about that this morning when you are being called to love your neighbor, when you're being called to love these believers who are gathered here this morning, ask yourself, what is it that you think of? The only way to have an enlarging and increasing and an abounding love for, for all the people who are gathered together here with all of our uniqueness and distinctness is not common association. It's because Jesus Christ loved each one here so much he died for them. I hope we hear a challenge in that this morning, people of God, that our love won't know bounds. That we will not allow a common interest or association kind of love to infiltrate us as if the basis for why we get together in fellowship and like each other is because of association. The apostle commends and gives thanks for the Thessalonians, not because they were discriminating in that sense, but they discerned the basis of loving one another. It was that Christ loved them. What a challenge for the church to, to, to constantly grasp, internalize, and seek to live out. It's not common interest. It's Christ's love for us. And so he commends them for that. And he commends them for a last thing here, which is perseverance and persecutions and afflictions. We're back to the word that we've seen so many times in endurance. It's kupamine. It's this ability to bear up under difficulty. Not to patience towards people, but that ability to, to, to soldier on, to drive on. To march through the muck in the midst of hardship. And the two words that are used here are commonly encountering words that we've seen again and again and again, which speak of the intensity of trial. They endure. Again, again, we see that this is a congregation, not of the faint-hearted, but those who were hardy in their faith. They counted it joy to suffer hardship for Jesus Christ. And they just saw sufferings as nothing more than the thump of the road beneath them under the wheel of life.
Now, I said there's a reason why we want to think about this. And the reason why we want to think about this is that's what the apostle reaches back to as he moves forward to pray for the church. And I can't help but bring this up. And if I've said it so many times that you may be uh, irritated, it may be grating on your nerves, it's fine with me because repetition is a good thing. But we have to marvel at how relentlessly Paul pursues the church to abound. If, if I were to tell you that there's this congregation that has an ever-increasing and enlarging faith, an expounding and overflowing brotherly and Christian love, and of a congregation that chews up endurance and trial like it's eating through glass and nails and smiles when it's done, you would say that's a congregation that's arrived. The apostle takes that very congregation and he says to them, you need to take it to another level. What a challenge we already hear this morning in this for every single believer that thinks that they've had more than small beginnings in the Christian life. The Apostle Paul says, fine, you just haven't taken enough yet. You're to abound more. This prayer is offered for people who are already giving every mark and indication of spiritual maturity. And so I think that we can say very safely this morning that these requests with its aim is suitable for every Christian in every place and station in life. So that means all of us should be listening. We should have donkey-sized ears this morning. Because the apostle was praying for people just like us. Wherever we may be in the Christian walk, he says, you've got a lot more room to grow. So let's turn to the requests. And as I said, we can see them fairly evidently here in verse 11. There's two. He is praying. He is praying for you. He says he's praying always, which means constantly, which speaks to the fervency and the constancy and the unrelenting nature of his praying. But I want you to see what he's doing here. First of all, he prays they would be counted worthy of calling. And I have to admit, this is a difficult phrase at face value, right? Because it seems odd that the apostle who expounds and extols grace so much as he does is praying they would be counted worthy of calling. By the way, this is a factual calling. The larger catechism speaks of the effectual call when it says it's a, it's a work of God's almighty power and grace flowing from his free and special love. And it's characterized by several elements, inviting and drawing to Christ, enlightening the mind, renewing the will, making them willing and able to respond to the call. It's a summary of the biblical teaching on calling, but what ought to grab our attention about it is that this effectual calling is something that is a work of divine grace through and through. Everyone here this morning who is a believer knows that had nothing to do with their calling. 
It's as if God set his radar upon you and drew you right out of the midst of the mire and muck of your life. You weren't doing anything. You're helpless, depraved, rebellious. How in the world can the apostle then pray that God would regard them worthy of something they could only have received by grace? And I think there's a few things we should say here. And the first is this, that it should be obvious to us that there is an ethical orientation to these prayers because as we see here in the second part of verse 11, he's praying that God would fulfill in them every work of faith. So he's thinking about Christian action and, and ethical behavior here. So that's step one. But step two is to think about this in relationship to, to another statement of Paul. This is one of the great rules of, of the Protestant and even Presbyterian doctrine of interpreting scripture. We interpret scripture with scripture. The less clear by the more clear. So what sounds to you more clear? The apostle saying here that he's praying that God would consider them worthy of the calling or Ephesians 4.1 where the apostle Paul says, I beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you have been called. See that? Called. It's already happened. It's, it's already this work of grace the, displayed in their life, poured out upon them. But, but he says, now that you're standing in this grace, it has another call built into it. That call is to walk consistently with the grace that's been poured out. You see, the effectual call contains within it a call to spiritual growth and maturity. So what is he saying? I, I want you to give more and more evidence of your Christian faith. That's what I want. I want you, believer this morning, wherever you are in your Christian life to think about this. The apostle, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says you need to bring out more faith, more obedience, more conformity to Christ, more attitudes which are pleasing to God. That's what he's praying. A display of grace in the form of you showing real tangible growth in maturity. That's your call here. Called to live up to the grace you've received. Don't hear this as something for the Thessalonians here for yourself. The other thing that I, I want to say here to just maybe give us a, a gasp of relief, it's quite obvious that this comes by grace that you do that, right? If it wasn't for the fact that it came by grace, then the apostle wouldn't be praying for it. See, the things we pray for, we receive by grace. So the very energy and desire and, and focus and drive comes from grace. So, so let's not be confused here. We're not 
We're not commingling law and gospel and getting this hybrid gospel, which is a, an ugly mutt. What we're getting here is the implications of the gospel call, that we've been called to something, and the very calling which we've been called to, we receive God's assistance and grace to fulfill. He works in us to display his glory. And then Matthew Poole, I think, throws in a word of wisdom here that calms every nerve. As he says, God's account is not according to the strictness of the law, but the indulgence of grace. I'll take it. But there's a call here for us. Built into this call, having received the effectual call, is this additional call now that I am to seek a greater display of spiritual growth and maturity. So that's our first request. The second one is a little bit more involved. So let's look at the second part of verse 11 where he says, Fulfill every desire for goodness in the work of faith with power. It, it seems off, obvious here now where the spotlight is on the ethical, right? Every desire for goodness. And, and that's not God's, it's ours. Every desire for goodness. The word for goodness has, um, uh, in other places in the New Testament, a, a sense of, of doing something that is in conformity to the will of God. And here it speaks of the desire, our desire, the desire of our redeemed, renewed, regenerate, spirit-indwelt heart. The word every applies to it, so it's expansive. And I, I thought about it like this. I think what the apostle is speaking of here, it, it is sanctified imagination. And why do I see imagination? I'm not thinking of, of, of the fairy tale or the fantastic. What I'm thinking of is that the apostle is, is conceiving of the Christian viewing life and the people of God around them, the church in which they're a part, the community in which they live, the vocation to which they're called, the family to which they're a part of. And he says, right there, you've been called to serve. And in that station, which each and every one of us has, there is a limitless set of things to be done. In fact, you're only limited by your capacity to imagine and see it. Work of faith is very similar. It's very similar in thrust um, because obviously work indicates to us a, a moral duty. And it's something that flows from faith. So, again, it's not secular. It, it, it's not legalistic. It, it's speaking, again, of the, of the heart consecrated by our faith, of the regenerate person. And, again, there is work to be done, right? There, there are encouraging words to speak. There are helpful deeds to perform. There is love to show. There are church projects that need participated. There's offices to serve it. There, there is just this abounding and limitless set of ways in which God calls us to serve him. That's what he's talking about here. The, the apostle, I, I get the sense, is, is praying that God would equip them 
mentally and spiritually to, to look upon the whole plane of life as it unfolds before them and to see themselves right in the middle of it and say, what did God call me to do? And, and he didn't see, think meagerly. He didn't say, just do a couple of things. It's expansive. It, it just keeps exploding uh, from one horizon to the next. This kind of reminds us of what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount. Where he says in John 5.16, as he's speaking to disciples, let your light shine before men in such a way they may see your good works and glorify your Father. The works of faith that Paul speaks of here, the every desire for goodness which Paul speaks of here is this shining light that Jesus talks about in the form of good works and the glory of God. When's the last time you sat there and said, what should I be doing? How should I be serving other Christians? You aren't called just to serve your family. That's pretty obvious. Otherwise, the apostle wouldn't be commending them for loving each other. Family is not the church. The church is made up of families, individuals. But there's an expansiveness to my Christian call, which extends beyond me and my nuclear family. And so this prayer request is a prayer for more of the church to have more awareness of a greater call in life. Serving God, letting the light shine, manifesting discipleship. It's a huge prayer. And the good news is that the Apostle Paul makes it very clear by the very way he prays it, that the energy to perform it, to see it, and to do it comes from God. I want you to know here that God is the subject of the verb fulfill. You could read this, may God fulfill. See that? Obviously, there's this side in us that we have the participation in the the sanctified creativity and imagination to see how God would have me serve. But the point of it here is the apostle is saying that it's God fulfilling. And that word fulfill means to bring a work to conclusion. It's God's work. And then if that didn't satisfy us, I want you to look at the very last phrase. In verse 11, what does it say? With power. That prepositional phrase modifies the verb fulfill. Fulfill with power. Whose power? God's. At every step, the apostle makes it very clear. We are not alone in this. He's not casting us back on our resources. He's making it abundantly clear to us this morning. He prays this prayer for you, for this church, 
for the people of God. The high, the, the calling is high. But the grace and help and power of God to sustain us in it is even greater. I, uh, as I step back and I look at this, I, I say the apostle paints a great picture here. He paints a, a picture of power and weakness. He paints a picture of power and weakness. See, where's the picture of weakness? And I say the pictures of weakness is in the very fact that the Apostle Paul is praying that they will receive grace from God to live the Christian life. Isn't that one of the great stumbling blocks to the Christian life is your constant awareness of your weakness. If you don't know your weakness, you're not thinking. And that's why this is an exhilarating prayer, because the Apostle Paul is saying, you are not confined to the limitations of your inabilities. That's good news for us this morning, isn't it? You are not confined to the limitations of your inabilities. Tremendous exhilaration here. The apostle calls us to unique and exciting service of God. And he says that God is the key to it. He fulfills it. He fulfills it with his power. And it's liberating. It's liberating. Because it says to us that if we apply ourselves to God's service, that God will make that service fruitful. Without God's help, we're weak. If we seek to do things in our own power and strength, you know what? They'll look like um, a dried up fruit tree with dead branches. Driving up the valley to go back home, there, there, there are literally hundreds of thousands of dead trees along the freeway because farmers stopped watering their crops. And in some places, there's nothing but mound after mound after mound of dismantled, chopped up trees that once were fruit bearing. That's us. Apart from the energy and grace and power of God, that's us. Jesus says, without me, you can do nothing. But the liberation of Paul's prayer this morning for us God has promised us that power, that help, and that strength. If we would humble ourselves and pray. Calvin has a great quote here that really caught my attention that I wanted to work into the sermon. So here it is. He says, it's easier to build a tower upon water than to perfect the faith of a believer. Just think of the stupidity of that statement. You get, it's ironic and funny and humorous, right? It's easier to build a tower upon water than it is to perfect the faith of the believer. But you see, the good news is that God works through us to fulfill with his power every desire that's good and every work of faith. There's a request, turn out of the aim. 
I remind you again that those words so that signal something to us, right? So that. They reach back to the two verbs of uh, verse 11, which form the backbone of Paul's prayers. Consider worthy and fulfill. And now he's telling you why he's praying that. Why is he praying that? Well, as you move forward to verse 12, you can see. So that the name of our Lord Jesus Christ will be glorified in you. Why does the apostle call for such Christian fruit? Because God is not glorified by a barren tree. God is not glorified by a barren tree or a barren church. The reason why he prays this way for the people of God, that God would fulfill with his power every desire of goodness and work of faith is because his aim at the forefront is the glory of Christ. And the way Christ is glorified in his church is by his church receiving redemptive, transformative, renewing grace and strength that they may serve. And that they may serve like our old Scottish Presbyterian friend, Eric Liddell. When I run, I feel his pleasure to win is to glorify him. <clears throat> you see, when God works in us in this way, Paul makes it clear we don't get the credit We get to be used as instruments to bring God glory. I, I, I think it's so important that we hear this this morning. Because it's one of those phrases that's so trite and true that we could become numb to it as Christians. Glory. I, I remember, and I've shared this with you before. This was our theme verse in our... Our football team, 1 Corinthians 10.31, whatever you do, whether, so whether you eat or whether you drink, do it all to the glory of God. If you couldn't say it right, you had to run gassers in 110 degree heat. You tend to get it right. It's easy to hear. What the apostle is saying here is he's laying upon us this weight of glory in a sense. He's saying, think carefully upon what God wants. It's to be glorified through you by the display of his grace. And so when we think about whatever we do in the Christian life, it should always be ringing in our ears. This is to the glory of God. Our world all around us here says, get yourself some glory. It relentlessly messages us with that theme. Get yourself some glory. Respect me. You deserve respect. This goes against our sinful nature. 
And so it's the reason why we have to hear it over and over and over and over again. Paul prays for the display of grace in our life. We wouldn't be barren trees, but fruitful ones. That God would be glorified. And then he adds to it glory for the saints. It's tricky because it's so emphatic that it would be that Jesus is glorified by us, by the way we live. But he says that you would be glorified in him. People have said, well, what in the world does that mean? Seems fairly obvious to me that the way we are glorified in Christ is by God sharing his glory with us. Can I quote you from Calvin? The wonderful goodness of God shines forth. That will, he will have his glory be conspicuous in us who are covered with ignominy. It says that the wonderful grace of God, the goodness of God is shown in this. That he would share his glory in and through us even while we are covered in ignominy and in our sin. Glory isn't ours. The glory is God. We need to saturate ourselves in this prayer. As we conclude this morning, I, I want to appeal to the comments of a, of a leading commentator on this text who, who says something that I think is self-evident, something that we'll all agree with, but I think is, a, is an entry point to to sing the application of our text. He says the prayer of the apostle is not made up of petty petitions. It's not made up of petty petitions, isolated requests that are answered by a God who intervenes in our lives and does something remarkable. I think we can all agree to that. This prayer is not made up of petty prayer requests. That somehow God, by his power, turns into something remarkable as he answers. He says, may we live worthy of our calling. May we be strengthened with God by his power to fulfill every good desire and work of faith. That's not petty. This prayer is not give me this and give me that. So I think we have a challenge here about how to reform our prayer. Again and again through this uh, series of prayers, uh, exposition through our series of Paul's prayers, I, I've been trying to help us think with the apostle about not only how to pray, but for what to pray. Not just how to pray, but for what to pray. And I've been stunned and shocked again and again and again as I see the content of Paul's prayers it's how they're so different from ours so often. One writer says that too often people view prayer as a, a domestic intercom to call creature comforts down from above. Prayer is a domestic intercom using the family den to call creature comforts down from above. Give me this. Give me that. Paul doesn't lead us to pray for things that are petty, tiny, frivolous, and vain. 
stuff of the greatest value. Christian action, Christian service, Christian maturity, spiritual growth and grace, that God would be glorified through you. Not petty petitions, but great ones. And that leads us to a second point of application. The very petitions, what we pray, are prayed for because of what moves Paul to pray. We learn what moves Paul to pray, not for petty petitions, but grand petitions. It's because what was in the forefront of his mind from the outset of his prayer, which is this vision of the vastness of the glory of God, the majesty of the name of God in all the earth. So the reason Paul would have us set our sights upon great things rather than petty things in our prayer is because God would be glorified. We need to be gripped by that this morning as we think about our prayer life. Is that how we are praying? Are we praying in the very things we seek from God? The ultimate aim that God would be glorified. I know we're used to praying, your will be done. And I must confess that I have at times prayed, thy will be done with the secret motive and desire that I sure hoped it was my will too. I hope you're a better Christian than me. You never prayed that way. But what ought to really drive that prayer request, thy will be done, is because when God's will is done, God is glorified. And that's where the spotlight goes in Paul's praying here in 2 Thessalonians. I'm praying all of this because at the forefront of my mind is this grander, more significant objective in it all. The glory of God. The glory of God. Someone once said that many Christians are missing something in life because they're always pursuing second best. Many Christians feel like they're missing something in life because they're always pursuing what's second best. You should be struck this morning. The apostle is not asking you. He's not commanding you. He's not teaching you to pray for second best. This is of the highest premium and value. God working in and through his church by his grace to generate in his people great acts of Christian service for the glory of his name. If we pray that way, we'll be seeking glory. Father, we thank you this morning for the expansiveness of the apostles' prayers. We know they were generated and prompted by the Spirit of God so that they would be prayers that would last throughout the rest of this age. And we need to be instructed, even as Jesus' disciples asked him, teacher, teach us how to pray. Father, we need to know how to pray. And we thank you this morning that we are yet again in the school of prayer. 
as we lend our ears to the prayers of the apostle for the church, we know he is leading us to pray as he prayed. And so Heavenly Father, move our hearts and open them that we would be receptive to his teaching and instruction. That as we pray like this in a way that's approved by you, inspired by you, that we'll see the fruit of it in our lives and we'll see you glorify in and through your church. We ask this now in Jesus' name. Amen.